Market insight and analysis. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Good Friday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Mike Santoli, live from separate locations. Kramer has the morning off. It is an historic and tragic day in the history of the American economy as an unprecedented 20.5 million jobs are lost in April. Unemployment triples to 14.7, the worst since the Great Depression. Futures up, though, as markets assume this is going to be short-lived. States like California begin reopening today. Oil's up 2%. Yields are up, uh, David, but... 20.5 in a data set that has never been more than 2 million in a single month. Just numbers we never expected to ever talk about. No, the numbers are just completely and totally shocking, of course. Not unexpected, however, given, uh, given the carnage that's taken place in the economy over the last month as uh, we locked everything uh, down. Those lockdowns obviously ending around the country, uh, things starting to at least normalize in some states, Carl. And the question, of course, will be of the 18 million workers who describe themselves as a temporary layoff of that 20 plus or roughly 20 million, uh, how many really will get their jobs back, I think, is a key. Given the market's reaction today, there seems to be an expectation, perhaps, that most of them will. But that will remain a question over the next many months, uh, as we hope, of course, that the economy does start to return to some semblance of normalcy. Yeah, Mike, uh, lots of internals to dig through here. Uh, people are going to parse U3 and U6. Uh, average hourly earnings show a bit of a chasm between uh, lower paid employees in this country and those with higher wages who, judging from the data, lost their jobs at a slower pace. Yeah, no doubt. Um, it, it certainly, first of all, it knocks everybody's idea of what a trend is. There's no way to necessarily handicap uh, the cadence of this number against what came before, what's likely to come next week. So I do think that the distribution of pain uh, is, is very clear here, which is that, uh, you know, people, more hourly workers, no doubt about it. Ha- almost half of the job losses on a net basis last month were from leisure, hospitality and retail. We knew that. Um, and then the question immediately turns to how fast those can be reabsorbed. I, I actually think continuing jobless claims, is going to be one of those numbers that gets a lot of attention as we go ahead, uh, just because it's going to give you some sense of how many people are falling away. And then, you know, as Dave was mentioning, those people who, you know, characterize their layoff status as temporary, obviously not every business decided to close permanently uh, for the shutdown. And seeing the wear and tear of business failure, uh, how, how that looks, whether there's a backstop for many of them or not. So that's the I think that's the exercise that we're going to be in for for some time right now. Um, whereas the, the public markets can kind of lean on these massive uh, companies with huge capitalizations that can, can handle this environment, even as uh, you have a lot of that damage uh, occurring on a monthly basis. Yeah. Uh, David, Carl, um, Mike, you know, I mean, uh, you never thought you'd. Yeah, go ahead, Carl. Go, go ahead, David. I was going to say, um, no, you know, uh, you know, it, yeah. it's, it's strange, strange to go straight from that data to stories like Shanghai Disney. But the market, as, as Mike points out, will lean on the effectiveness of policy response, hopes for health care solutions, therapeutics, vaccines and signals that a V or a recovery of any kind can happen anywhere else around the world. And, and the selling out of tickets at Shanghai Disney for their Monday opening is just one more clue in that direction. Right. Although it is the selling out of tickets it, at 30 percent capacity. Right. So so you have to kind of right, adjust your right. expectations for how how forcefully things will come back. Uh, and, you know, honestly, I know everyone's going to be remarking on this 
uh, perceived mismatch, but disconnect between how markets have behaved and what this number represents. And there's no getting away from that on a surface level. But, you know, when the S&P went down 35 percent in a month and was trading at a three and a half year low in late March, that was saying we're going to go to 15 percent unemployment. So we're just, you know, six, seven weeks later and, uh, and, and markets are in a different spot. Yeah. Uh, Carl, your, your point on Disney's well taken. There certainly seems to be demand in Shanghai. Mike, Mike's point, of course, they are not going to be able to in any way get near capacity at these parks. And when they open up in the United States, as Bob Chapek, the company's CEO, made clear on the conference call, they also don't anticipate getting anywhere near uh, even 50 percent initially. It's going to be a slow ramp. And of course, the questions with Disney continue to be quite significant in terms of how long the leverage ratio at the company is so large right now at uh, between five and six uh, times, given the EBITDA that has come down dramatically. Um, but guys, one other thought on the jobs picture, and I don't know if you're hearing it as well. And, and, and it, you know, this is the way of business is as sort of hard as it may be to, to, to hear. But there are a number of companies that are using this as the opportunity that they were looking for to become more efficient. Uh, and those jobs are not going to come back. You know, you think of an Uber and, and what we heard from Barak Rashahi earlier and on the conference call as well. But so many companies that, that I've been hearing from where they're looking at this as that opportunity they may not have been able to have taken full advantage of in the past to really create efficiency. And so I, I do wonder how many of those 18 million are part of that cohort that is not going to come back in terms of their jobs. That's a, an excellent point. Uh, explain some of uh, the optimism in stocks that you that we've seen, uh, David, on that very point. Let's get to Ed Yardeni of Yardeni Research joins us this morning. Also, J.P. Morgan Asset Management's uh, chief global strategist, David Kelly. Ed, I want to ask you about exactly what David just said. Uh, when people see carnage like the data this morning, they look at futures green. How much of that is explained by the stock market trying to sniff out improvements in operating leverage that come in crises? Yeah, I think that's uh, part of it. Uh, right now, of course, we're uh, seeing profit margins uh, implode uh, because that's what they do in recessions. And uh, this is a depression-like recession that's uh, very concentrated probably in the uh, first, second, and third quarters. But the market's looking beyond that for sure. And it's focusing on trends that were underlying our economy even before the great virus crisis, as I call it, um, uh, trends that have actually been accelerated by the GVC. And uh, those trends are mostly digital and biological uh, technologies. Uh, and there are a lot of companies that have a very large market cap in, in those areas, uh, which is why the market has uh, done uh, so well. Uh, the other thing to consider, of course, is uh, the market, I think, did bottom on March 23rd, uh, when the uh, Fed uh, said, that, you know, the heck with the bazookas, the heck with helicopters, we're just going to load up B-52s with uh, cash, and they just carpet-bound the economy uh, with all this cash. And uh, so the liquidity is there. And by the way, there's still like over a trillion dollars that was accumulated by uh, the mad dash for cash during March that's just sitting there that still, I think, provides a cushion for any downside in the market. David, are you of that uh, view? And what do you say to those who try to argue the bond market's not at all ratifying what stocks are telling us? Well, I, I think there, there are a few different things going on here. First of all, I think the stock market probably 
We'll see some further correction here. I think there are too many people betting on a V-shaped recovery in the U.S. economy. Uh, we think it is a U-shaped um, recession. You know, this has carved out the first, uh, you know, the left wall of a U here. But I think the unemployment rate will come up, go up a little bit more in the next few months before it begins to come down. Then it comes down very slowly. And I think, you know, I, I think it's we have to get into 2021 before we see a meaningful recovery. And I don't think that that is built into the stock market. Uh, as for the bond market, you know, I don't think the rates ought to go lower here because we are printing a huge amount of money to buy a huge amount of bonds. Uh, we could see another $2 trillion in fiscal stimulus here. So at some stage down the road, the Fed's going to have to, you know, once we've got a recovery going, the Fed's going to have to raise rates. And that makes, you know, interest rates at these levels somewhat unappetizing. So I think both the bond market and the stock market are to some extent looking further ahead. And I think the bond market can see that at some stage there will be higher rates to pay for this. Um, and I think the stock market is hoping that this thing is not too long. But boy, is it deep. And I don't think the stock market is quite um, reflecting the depth of the recession that we're seeing right now. David, um, on the broader economy, if I recall from our many conversations through the years, CapEx is something that you have certainly focused on, at least uh, in part. I know we're a consumer-led economy, but we've had a parade of CEOs come on our air virtually every day, all of whom are cutting their CapEx, some very significantly. The numbers, I'm sure, are amounting to a fairly large overall number. What impact does that have? And sort of how do you see that playing out? Well, what it does is it takes this very unusual virus recession and makes it look more traditional. So you can see that in the durable goods report if you look at how orders just collapsed at the end of March. And I think we're going to see more problems there. Uh, so it, it does extend this. It means that, you, that the Federal Reserve, and particularly the federal government, have got to try to um, you know, re-engineer a recovery of, in the economy simultaneous with a, a getting past the virus situation. It's not, you know, if this was a very short, it was just about the virus, you could just focus on leisure entertainment, get that back up and going, and you're fine. But now, unfortunately, because of the deeper recession, the global recession, you are seeing these problems with CapEx. I think you're going to see problems with profitability, companies going bankrupt. Um, and that means uh, it's going to be more work to get this economy to, to full employment. So, you know, I'm, I'm not I do think that most of the jobs we lost in April, we will recover uh, within a year of a vaccine. But I think it's going to be a long time, many years before we're back to where we were, even as, you know, in, in February in terms of the unemployment rate. And, uh, we're all used to the morning. idea that the. Yeah, sorry, Ed. Uh, we're all used to the idea that the stock market looks ahead. It tries to figure out where earnings are going and, and can kind of try and, uh, and get through this trough period. Uh, also, that the market kind of rotates toward the areas that are more resilient. That's all been going on. But overall earnings, when do you think S&P earnings can get back to last year's levels? We're looking at something maybe like an 18 or 20 percent decline calendar year. 2020. When do they go back and what does that mean for the valuation of the overall market? I think they could get... David, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. Go ahead, David. All right. Uh, let me take this one first and then, then Ed, perhaps you use on it. I think that we're not going to make it in 2021. I think that 2021 will be the first year of recovery from the virus, but I think there is a good chance in 2022. Um, and I think that at that point, businesses will be able to ramp up their margins, hold wage costs down, hold interest costs down, so I think if by 2022 we can get back to where we were in 2019, that's what makes these stock market valuations seem not ridiculous here. So uh, I do think it's possible, but not, not next year. I think we'll have to wait one more year. Can I jump and, in now? Uh, Morgan Stanley yesterday. 
Ed, Morgan Stanley did a survey of CFOs and COOs uh, yesterday about the second half, and they asked about top priorities. Number one was maintain investment in technology, 54 percent, and maintaining employee count was much lower at 33. Um, Is that going to drive uh, your stock selection? Well, I, I think it's, uh, it's, it's driving the, the market's uh, performance. Um, ever since uh, we bottomed on March 23rd, we've seen uh, the NASDAQ on fire. We've seen technology stocks on fire. Uh, we know that technology and healthcare and the S&P 500 account for 40% of the market cap uh, of the total index. So uh, the market's already figured out that uh, uh, okay. the, the place to be is where the, uh, the trends are going to take us uh, at a faster pace. Uh, and a lot of them are in technology, and a lot of them are in healthcare. Uh, I, I, because of the Zoom technology, we're kind of stepping over each other. But I did want to make a comment on the um, uh, capital spending idea. I think a lot of supply chains are going to come back home, um, particularly in, in manufacturing of drugs and maybe some of the more uh, sensitive issues of technology with regards to national security. And uh, that's actually going to be a pretty good business for a lot of technology companies, a lot of industrial companies uh, to help everybody bring these supply chains back home for security purposes. And I think that will actually lead to uh, job creation. And I think it also lead to more capital spending. Uh, And that may turn out to be one of the biggest priorities uh, coming out of all this. It's not just about what CEOs have as a priority, but politically speaking, some of these issues on the uh, trade side have turned into national security issues, uh, which will put a tremendous uh, pressure uh, and incentive to uh, stimulate those areas of the economy. That, but yeah, Ed, that, that causes inflation, doesn't it? I mean, man, that's, that's got to add a lot of cost conceivably overall. Well, it, 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 it would if, uh, if it wasn't for technology. I think technological innovation is really the key here to allowing us to bring supply chains in critically important national security uh, industries uh, back to the U.S., like drugs, like uh, 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 telecommunications and semiconductors and the like. I mean, we're, we're really quite good at all these areas. We just have to bring them back home, um, given the uncertainties that were just created. I think we're going to go from just-in-time inventories to just-in-case inventories, and I think uh, the, uh, the the reason I don't see inflation making a big comeback is we have a tremendous amount of technological innovations in 3D uh, manufacturing, uh, in artificial intelligence, robotics. All those uh, technologies, I think, are going to allow us to bring tech manufacturing back. Uh, you know, uh, Mother's Day is, uh, is, is coming up here, and uh, uh, I, I think we are going to see uh, uh, something to the effect of uh, – uh, making uh, America manufactured again. Um, and uh, I think that's a trend that's going to be very investable. Ed, David, uh, appreciate it, guys. Uh, on a tough number, help, uh, thanks for helping our viewers understand it a little bit better and the implications, David Kelly and Ed Yardeni. Uh, we will take a quick break. Uh, on the other side, we'll talk more about uh, what's happening with Shanghai Disney on Monday. In the meantime, futures are green as we wrap up what's just been an incredible week. We're back in a minute. Welcome back to Squawk on the Street. Disney reported earnings earlier this week. Of course, a focus for investors is the company's theme parks, an area which it is losing, well, lost over a billion dollars in a very short period of time and perhaps as much as a billion a month while many remain shuttered. One that's opening, though, Shanghai Disney. Let's get to Eunice Yoon now uh, for the latest on that expected opening in a couple of days. Eunice. 
Thanks so much, David. And there's a lot of excitement about it. Chinese media say that the tickets for the first day sold out in three minutes, and for the week in just under an hour. A Shanghai Disneyland was a major topic of discussion today on social media in China. And, and one of the things that people said the most is that they want to get a ticket because they wanted to be able to go to the park and not stand in line.、Uh, one of the ways、uh, in which the、uh, um, the company is going to try to keep everybody safe, including a visit. And staff is to limit the capacity. Other measures that the company plans to put in place to enter, everyone is going to have to go through a temperature check and show a government-issued health code, which is very common here in China.、Uh, visitors are also going to be spaced out for rides and restaurants, and everyone is going to be required to wear a mask. Now, Disney says that the Chinese government has asked that attendance be capped at 30 percent. The company said that it plans to keep the capacity well under that as it adjusts for the. Reopening during the next couple of weeks,、uh, most of the attractions are going to remain open to the public, except for some where there is a lot of interaction for people in close quarters, such as the theaters, for example. Also, the parades and the fireworks display、um, aren't going to be there. Instead, they're going to be replaced because the company wants to avoid a lot of crowds. And then one thing that might be disappointing for a lot of kids is that you can't get a close-up photo with your favorite. Character instead for Mickey. They're going to be all the characters will be there, but they are going to be social distancing as well. So you might have to settle for for a hand wave, Carl. That's going to be、um, the hard part is、uh, making sure that it's、uh, that it's Disney and a Disney <laughs> that we know.、Uh, Eunice,、uh, thank you. We're going to obviously stay in close contact with you come Monday morning. Our, our Eunice Yoon、uh, in Beijing. In the meantime, more on this morning's jobs number、uh, and the week at large with Rick Santelli. Hey, Rick. Hi, Carl. Yes, the job number was predicted quite accurately because. Whether it's the governments or we know the reason behind government shutdown, the coronavirus globally, everybody's pretty much idling in place. And that number, well, maybe the market liked it because it could have been higher. But my read is it's more the stories like Eunice had, the possibility of things opening up, those tickets selling out in three minutes. And consider this: the stock market being up might not. Be telling us exactly what the future holds, but it tells us that people investing. Maybe they're the higher economic classes. Maybe it's not middle class and down. It's middle class and up. But they believe that all of us are going to eventually be buying durable goods and have jobs and buying their wares because the companies wouldn't be profitable otherwise. Look at a two-day of two-year note yields. They've gotten down to 11 basis points before rebounding a couple of basis points today. And Fed fund futures right now, if you look at December 2020 and beyond, they are trading 100 or higher, and that implies negative overnight rates. So this is really the big story. We continue to see so much buying in the short maturities. Yes, it's steepening the curve, but it also harbors some negative sentiment. Negative rates aren't going to be a good thing in the United States, even though it is market-driven. It really is on the backs of trying to anticipate what Federal Reserve and what monetary policy will be, zero to twenty-five, and market-driven rates below that point. The only way to negate that, of course, is for Jay Powell and company to address that. And if you look at the dollar index, this is really fascinating. We've now are in our eighth week, or at least one day, and. The last eight weeks, we've settled a hundred or higher in the dollar index. Look at it from a March first start. Dollar index remains very firm, especially after the jobs number. David, back to you. Rick, thank you, Rick Santelli. 
Carrier Corporation reporting its first quarter since being spun off from the old United Technologies. The CEO, David Gitlin, will join us in a CNBC exclusive interview. Stay with us. We've got a lot more Squawk in the Street. The jobs number for April, 20.5 million jobs lost. Uh, unprecedented, really. On the other hand, uh, more earnings continue to build a theme of stabilization. We'll get to Roku and Uber and booking holdings and a lot more when Squawk on the Street continues on this Friday. That jobs number notwithstanding this morning, uh, futures are positive. And, and Mike Santoli, it does sort of bring to mind uh, the dynamic we've seen the last few days where uh, stocks are higher, but the AD line sort of withers throughout the course of the session and makes them wonder about the sustainability of this, Do we call it whether we call it a rally or not. Yeah. Uh, well, the rally certainly since March has flattened out. And uh, th- those that pattern the last few days, you have this kind of pop open of 1% or more. And in the last few days, I mean, the, the high for the day was almost right around that 2,900 level. We got above there last week by a couple percent. So it seems like there's a little bit of a struggle to, to get uh, an impetus to get beyond that number right now. Uh, also, just some interesting dynamics below the surface. As you mentioned, uh, it's kind of uh, some wear and tear on the breath numbers over the last you know, week or so. But also, you've had this extreme outperformance. Everybody's been acknowledging and celebrating or denigrating of the huge mega cap growth stocks. And then on a given day like yesterday, though, you see this quick mean reversion and the, the, the rubber band seems stretched too tight and the, the beaten down stuff like banks and other value stocks uh, outperform in energy. So that's the, I think, a little bit of the churn right now. Uh, bigger picture, I think the question is, you know, given that there's still this stubbornly pessimistic sentiment and defensive positioning out there, how much more can that fuel, uh, at least cushion the downside or fuel uh, further rises here, even when nobody really has good clarity about uh, where we're headed in terms of the macro, except that it's going to get better from awful levels. Yeah, Yeah, although, Uh, David, uh, we talk. um, Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Carl. No, I was going to say, we talked about the NASDAQ going positive for the year yesterday. This morning, maybe we'll get people talking about the VIX with a two-handle for the first time since yep. uh, March 3rd. Yeah. And you know what's relevant the there, uh, Carl, in part, morning. is that the, the, the S&Ps are on the same level as a week ago, and the VIX is down 10 points. Yeah, but Mike, the S&P is at the same level it was a year ago. It hasn't, I mean, yep. it's where, and the NASDAQ's up 13.5% from where it was a year ago. I mean, you can talk about pessimism. It's very but true. What does that say? It says there's a composition effect right here. Um, the NASDAQ 100 year to date has outperformed the S&P industrial sector by 40 percentage points. I mean, the market inside of it is not saying things are just as good as they were last year. They're saying we can hide in these durable businesses. You know, NASDAQ is flat year to date. Absolutely. 40% of the NASDAQ is the big five stocks. So the big five are 21 or right. something percent of the S&P. They're 40% of the NASDAQ. We're not talking about thousands of stocks. We're not talking about even the wisdom of crowds saying what the economy is going to look like. We're saying these financial assets attached to these long live cash flows um, are right now in this environment worth uh, worth owning at these levels. So I, I totally get your point, although I would say the S&P 500 closed yesterday also at that January 2018 high. So you're going back over two years in terms of when we first got uh, to these, this area. Yeah, yeah, but we didn't the have big board, uh, by over the way, guys, 20 million uh, people unemployed. 
Sorry, yeah, go ahead, right. for sure. Uh, Kevin Fitzgibbons, uh, NYSE chief security officer, rang the bell at the NASDAQ. It's Kingsoft Cloud, a cloud service provider in China. But, David, if, if Jim were here, he'd probably uh, repeat what he said several days now, and that the, is that the pandemic effect on the economy is a largely a small business story. And we're here covering public, uh, large cap, mid cap uh, companies that have access to capital and will probably use this crisis to consolidate at the expense of small business. It's true. And as I said earlier, even pursue efficiencies that perhaps in another environment they didn't feel as um, as urgent to to pursue. Uh, And those efficiencies, unfortunately, may result in further job losses or not bringing back the people who have already been laid off. But you're right, Carl. And, and, you know, we talk so often during the course of this crisis about what behaviors will be like. Will people resume their their typical activities? It's hard to say. I can tell you anecdotally, um, you know, uh, I know one large restaurateur who has a number of different uh, different price point restaurants in states across the country. They're not seeing the return in traffic in those states that have opened up, at least not yet. They can only be at 25 percent capacity. Uh, But in fact, they're not getting anywhere near that at this point. Is that indicative of anything we can assume longer term in terms of the willingness of people to go back to these kinds of businesses you're talking about? Unclear. But uh, but it is going to continue to be, Carl, a key question. Yeah. Among the names we didn't get to uh, so far, guys, uh, David Uber's up 7%, of course, uh, much wider than expected loss than we thought. Uh, ridership down 5 but Eats up 52 And Dara Khosrowshahi did uh, talk this morning on Squawk Box about what he called a tale of two quarters. Take a listen. On the Eats side, we're seeing that business actually substantially accelerating. That was a big business for us that was already growing very, very quickly in the 50% range. And in April, we saw the growth outside of India, which we divested, around 89% as more and more people sheltered at home, uh, as more and more restaurants signed up for our service. And obviously, delivery is a very, very growth area for us. Another disconnect, David. Um, you lay off 3,700 workers. Uh, the next day, your stock's at a, uh, what, uh, highest since March 5th. Yeah, and... They have had to push out their plan to get to profitability, but not as far as many analysts and investors had expected perhaps would be the case for Uber. And again, 3,700 jobs, as you say, uh, you know, investors are applauding what they felt in the past was Uber's reluctance to cut back in certain markets where they were continuing to lose significant amounts of money. This crisis, of course, has forced them to do that. And so they're being strangely enough, rewarded to a certain extent in the stock market as a result of that, as you say. Um, Mike, you mentioned earlier, of course, the big names uh, powering this, uh, the S&P and the Nasdaq in particular. I did notice Microsoft, for example, up slightly, but it did hit a $1.4 trillion market value earlier. I'm not sure, but that may be a new high overall. Yeah, that's uh, well, um, maybe on the I don't know what the share count looked like, but I think didn't the stock get up to the 190s uh, in February, but it's very close. Uh, if none, if nothing else, it was fascinating yesterday, you know, those big guys underperformed a little bit. Um, and, you know, Microsoft was up like seven, ten, you know, seven tenths of a percent. And it sort of taken the day off and it added $10 billion in market value. So that's the that's just the way that this sort of flow has been has been taking these stocks. And then it's interesting when you talk about 
you know, Uber, there always was, even when the economy was doing well at full employment, that whole category of stocks where it wasn't about earnings today. We're looking many years out. And so the fact that we're not having earnings anytime soon doesn't really affect that much the bullish case on Uber, such as it is right now, or on the cloud software stocks to some degree, or on Roku, which I know is backing off today, uh, or on Peloton, where you have these huge thematic secular growth stories. Market's happy to play with them. Meantime, their version of defense is is Microsoft, as you say, uh, $1.4 trillion. So I, I think that's the way the market's been held together here. It's a good expla- explanation uh, of why we're sitting here. But th- that idea that it's already, it's now okay for Silicon Valley to lay people off, right? Uber's doing it, Airbnb's doing it, WeWork's done. So that's, that's now a little bit of a, of a story of, uh, you know, rushing to profitability or margins. But what, is it th- what does it mean, though, for the vitality of the economy? And, and that's, you know, I think the market's kind of willing to bet to get lucky on that front uh, in the short term, but it's totally unclear as to whether it's overplayed that hand. Interesting, guys. I'm trying to keep a list of uh, companies that have announced reopenings or restarts for the month. Uh, the big ones, of course, Ford, uh, Toyota's on the tape now. In Europe, they're going to open some more plants on Monday. We know about store reopenings, David, Macy's, Gap, Kohl's. Rite Aid. Uh, And now uh, uh, Boeing's CEO is on the tape saying that the 737 Max factory will come back online this month. Of course, we talked to Greg Hayes yesterday of Raytheon about the challenges in the OE space. When you have so many planes already parked in the desert, uh, what will demand be for a brand new one? Yeah, and we talked to Larry Culp last week about very similar, of course, both of those guys are in constant contact, as you might expect, with Boeing, given how, what an important customer this, the company is. But the stock is up yet again, uh, Carl, and we certainly can point back to the $25 billion that Boeing successfully raised in the credit markets at varying maturities, but roughly at a spread of about 450 basis points over the corresponding treasury. You know, maybe that was the bottom. I don't know, Mike. Uh, you know, we do and should look to the credit markets to a certain extent for signs of health or uh, weakness in many of these many of these companies that are struggling to maintain and um, and implement uh, or actually add to their liquidity. Yeah, for sure. I mean, if you think about what scenario was being discounted back when the stock market was at its lows in March, it definitely was this kind of headlong default cycle. It was going to pull in lots of big companies. Ford and GM have have managed to raise new debt at manageable rates and kind of get, build up their cushion. Uh, that was after the Fed said that they might you know, intervene in the corporate bond market. Of course, you mentioned Boeing. There's still a very active default cycle going on, but it's for now mostly in the kind of structurally impaired areas of the, of the economy that we sort of knew were a little bit touch and go, whether it's retail or some energy and things like that. So that's, that theme is going to be with us. It probably just doesn't seem right now like it's going to claim you know, big disruptive systemic victims, at least that's what, you know, the credit markets have enabled right now. So I do think that's a, a big story. Arguably high yield uh, conditions haven't improved that much in the last few weeks as the stock market has had a good run. So maybe there's a little bit of uh, of slight disagreement there. But, it, you know, that's the backdrop totally is the credit markets have given permission uh, for uh, for the stock market to say that we're not going to have that real downward spiral type scenario very soon. Yeah, yeah, although you do hear well, people uh, say, Mike, that, thing, uh, you know, go ahead, Carl. Sorry. Go ahead, David. Uh, I'm sorry. I was just going to say, um, um, 
you know, speaking of like the consumer effect uh, on things like travel, uh, Royal Caribbean comes out this morning and says that bookings for 2021 are within historical ranges, which uh, I guess is a surprise to some. And of course, Norwegian talked to Jim on Mad Money uh, just last night. Take a quick listen to this. We expect to sail sometime in 2020. It would be irresponsible for me to give you a specific date because we still have to gain clearance from the, uh, the CDC and other government agencies. But we're working hard shoulder to shoulder with them to develop and uh, enhance uh, protocols of every kind you can think of. All right. So, David, didn't mean to step on you, but Royal Caribbean up 4 percent, obviously up off of a much lower base than prior to the crisis. Yeah, and Norwegian Cruise Lines, to your point as well, Carl, I mean, it was only a few days earlier that they were talking about going concern concerns, and then they were able to raise, what, 400 million bucks at least at only a 7% coupon, it looks like, with Catterton uh, the other day. So they may be in a much better position. That sort of whipsawed people as well, Mike, in terms of the performance of some of these stocks. Uh, one day you're given going concern warnings, and then and two days later you are able to access the 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 capital markets in some fashion, or at least oh, yeah. private uh, private money, uh, to to help to help shore you up. And and there's an intense wave of, of short covering that definitely washed through the market in the last couple of days that reflects a little bit of that uh, type of uh, of whipsaw. So, guys, um, we'll kick off the session here. Obviously, well in the green, just about every Dow component is green, with the exception of IBM. Let's get to Bob Pisani. Morning, Bob. Morning, guys. Happy Friday. A good week overall. We're up almost 3%. Strong start, but we're off of the highs there. It's nice to see some key components that have been real laggards this week leading this morning. So let's take a look at the sector leaders. Uh, Banks, this is a really big one today. The yields spiked when the jobs report came out. One little bit of good news in an otherwise awful report. So that's been a terrible group this week. That's leading. Energy's been good. Industrials. Tech's lagging today. That's interesting because generally tech's been a leader all throughout the week. Uh, If you take a look at the winners this week, I'd have to say online if you're ordering stuff online. So XWEB, this is the Spider Internet ETF. This is a good one to watch. And this one, if you look, this has gone completely, this is almost a V-shape if you look at it on a multiple mold. Not just Amazon and Google, though, this week. So we've seen uh, Twilio, uh, Etsy, um, Zillow, eBay, Snap, all of them have come back. Anything, if you can order online, uh, generally has done much better this week. That's certainly a bit of a good sign. I mentioned the banks did not like the action of the banks all this week until that jobs report came out here. So Wells Fargo was down 8% going in this week. The regionals like Sinovus, Key, and Zions, they were all down 3 4 5%. Uh, you can see that spiked a little bit today, but you want to watch that because there's no leadership at all in the banks uh, right now. As we do every day, we Line up the companies that are pulling guidance that are out there. They're still there, and we're 70% through our earnings season. But Hostess Brands, Fiserv, Colony Capital, Region Center, Fleet Core, uh, Zillow didn't provide any guidance at all today. I don't know if that counts as pulling guidance, but just a, a steady stream. Uh, we have seen close to 40% of the companies reporting not providing any guidance at all. One of the more interesting things is the dispute about where the bottom is. Uh, There's a lot of different opinions on whether we're at a bottom or not. Look today, Uber was talking about they were off the bottom. They saw green green shoots. But Siemens, sort of the the GE of Europe, one of the big 
multinational conglomerates talked about a Q3 bottom at the earliest out there. Uh, Live Nation has no prediction on a return to normal in 2020. They hope they're going to return to normal in 2021. And TripAdvisor said revenues are continuing to decline. We did have an IPO today. We'll keep an eye on this. Kingsoft Cloud, China's internet cloud service provider. They priced nicely. 30 million shares at 17. That's above the price talk of 25 million. This is the first China IPO since Luck and Coffee and all those problems. And remember, the SEC has warned about investing in Chinese stocks. Finally, guys, Art's back, 11 o'clock. Carl, you and I will be talking with Art Cashin, his predictions on what we'll be seeing in the following week. Always look forward to that. David, back to you. Bob, that's good news. Glad to hear that Art uh, is back. Thank you, uh, Bob Bassani. Well, shares of Carrier uh, uh, up, got them up almost 5% this morning. This after the company reported its first quarter as a newly public entity, having been spun off from the old United Technologies not long ago. Uh, David Gitlin is the company's CEO, and he joins us now in an exclusive on CNBC. Very nice to have you this morning with us, David. Thank you, David. Um, I want to start off on a theme we, uh, that at least I'd referenced earlier in the show, uh, and we see it from so many companies, which is cutting CapEx. You have done that as well, cutting CapEx by 40 to 50 percent, reducing it from your initial plan of, I think, it was $350 million to $400 million. Just give me some sense as to why you made that decision and how you figure out what the right number is when you're thinking about cuts you can make. Yeah, we believe in this environment, it's important to be very prudent. So when we looked at CapEx, we did, as you said, we reduced it from our initial plan of 350 to 400 down to 200 to 225. But keep in mind, typically we are at that 250 level. So we're almost commensurate with prior years. And what we decided is that we're going to cut everything that's discretionary, things like we were going to consolidate ERP systems around the world. We pushed some of that to the right. Frankly, we have a lot of investments we put aside for automation, and it's not the right climate to have industrial engineers in sight. So we pushed some of our automation projects to the right. They will come back. Our view is it's easier for an outfielder to run forward than backwards. So, you know, as the year progresses and we see if the economic uh, situation lightens up a bit, then we will pull some of the CapEx we push into next year, pull it back into this year. But we decided to be aggressive in this environment to preserve cash. Right. Uh, 80% of your sales are in Europe and the U.S. One would expect that things are pretty tough right now, uh, both in residential and throughout your other businesses. What are you seeing and how much sort of transparency do you have in terms of what your business is going to look like a few months out? Yeah, what we saw in the U.S. and Europe is orders for the U.S. were down about 5% and orders in uh, Europe were about 10%. So the crisis really moved, started in China. It hit China very, very hard. Uh, China was very much a, a V-shape for us. It came down aggressively, but frankly, a covered, recovered very aggressively. China orders for us were down 50%, down 40% for the entire first quarter. But then when you fast forwarded in China... We were back at 2019 levels as we got into April. So a steep decline and a steep recovery. It feels to us like the decline in the U.S. and Europe will be shallower, but the recovery will be longer. So what we saw in April was that orders in the U.S. were down 25 percent. They were down 30 percent in April uh, in, in Europe. And we are starting to see some areas within Europe show signs of recovery. Germany is starting to feel good. Uh, Italy and Spain are coming back. France is very slow, uh, very slow recovery right there. 80% of the construction projects in France are still shut down. So it's going to be a mixed bag in Europe, and you're probably going to see some of the same in, in the U.S. with 
uh, different states coming back online at different times, you're going to see a fairly jagged recovery. But hopefully, as we get into the end of this quarter to next, we start to see those recoveries kick in. Yeah. Um, you know, specific to housing, David, um, given it's an important part of what you do uh, as the number one residential provider of uh, HVAC, um, we saw housing starts drop dramatically. How much are you impacted by that? And again, what are your expectations on the residential market here in the U.S.? Yeah, we believe new housing starts will be down about 10 to 20 percent this year. And, you know, you look back in April, there were 3.8 million Americans that did not pay their mortgage. So you will see some deferral as we get through this year for new housing starts. When we look at our residential business in HVAC, actually 80 percent of our business is replacement. So when a system breaks, uh, there is going to still be pent up demand, especially if you hit uh, some key uh, heat waves in certain parts of the country. You are going to see some demand for that replacement cycle. We still believe that'll be down about 15 percent as well. But we believe that it's going to be a push out rather than uh, an elimination of demand. Right. Not to mention a lot of people are staying home more than they would typically. I guess they might be running their air conditioners in a more aggressive fashion than is, uh, has been the case in the past. Yeah, and I also believe that when they break and they're, stu- they're quarantined, they're going to certainly want to replace them. Yeah, they are, uh, without a doubt. Um, you know, you run factories around the world, assembly lines. I'm curious, David, how are you dealing with social distancing on an assembly line where somebody's putting together one of, the, uh, one of these kinds of systems? Is it an issue for you uh, or is it something you're able to deal with? And is it taking efficiency away from the business? There's no doubt it's uh, uh, causes some efficiency issues. Uh, if you picture uh, a residential HVAC plant where we have a moving belt, often some of the uh, technicians are shoulder to shoulder. So what we've done is we've gone to multi-shifts. We have distanced people. We've staggered them on either side of the belt. Um, we put plexiglass uh, in between the various technicians. Uh, I think ultimately what you're going to see is a combination between robotics and human interaction. So you probably, where you have people spaced out three feet and you wanna get them spaced out six feet, probably the spacing in between, in between, you're gonna see, I think a trend towards robotics overall, not to replace the human interaction, but to actually supplement it and work together. So we've managed it, I think, as aggressively as we can, but I would say the fixes we put in place to increase social distancing, I would describe as short-term to make sure that we can keep our plants running. I think as we get through this pandemic, we're going to come out with more holistic, sustained approaches. Interesting. Uh, And finally, speaking of the pandemic and impacts or actually positive impacts it might have on your business, you know, there are a lot of buildings that may be looking to uh, increase or upgrade their filtration systems. I can imagine restaurants, perhaps, uh, that want to put a sign in the door that says, you know, our air is filtered all the time. Is that a real opportunity for Carrier? Absolutely. Uh, I think Carrier will lead the way. As we transition what you would characterize as sick buildings to healthy buildings, a big piece of that will be ventilation. Part of it is exactly what you just said is ventilate, uh, in the ventilation system. And one of the things we said on our earnings call is that we're putting the VBAC and HVAC with a real focus on ventilation. The filtration system, many of the filtration system in buildings around the world today cannot filter contaminants at a microscopic level, 0.1, uh, 0.3 micron size. And we have electrostatic filtration systems for homes. We have UAV and other types of 
HEPA filters for buildings. So you're going to see a lot better filtration systems. Air changes per hour is a key metric that buildings look at for healthy buildings. The room I'm in right now, the air changes per hour in this room should be about 10. And many buildings around the world, whether it's universities or it's nursing homes or it's commercial buildings, don't have the right kind of frequent ventilation that you'd expect out of a building. Cleaning ductwork. Ducts ought to get cleaned every three to five years to avoid bacteria buildup or mold. And most buildings don't have the kind of frequency of, of duct cleanliness. So I think as you see the new normal come back and people go back into restaurants, back into commercial buildings, there's going to be a lot more attention on am I in a healthy building? And what you're going to see is that companies like Carrier will step up and be part of the solution to create the healthy buildings that we expect. David, uh, we're out of time today, but very happy that you were able to join us uh, after your first report as a quarterly uh, uh, quarterly report as a uh, public company. David Gitlin, look forward to having you back in the future as well. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thanks for having me. All right, let's head. Let's take a quick break here with the S and P up about. 1.1%. We've got a lot more squawk on the street coming right back. Some of the week today, Dow Gainers. Home Depot's actually in the lead. Uh, behind that, Apple, Microsoft, Chevron, and Visa, all with 5 to 6% gains. We're back in just a moment on this Friday. Don't go away. Getting more indications this morning of just how flying will change for Americans uh, from here on out. Phil Lebeau's got more on that today. Morning, Phil. Morning, Carl. Uh, This has been debated and now it's actually going to happen. The first U.S. airline to say that it will institute temperature checks for all passengers and crew members before they can get on board. It was announced last night that Frontier Airlines, in fact, we talked with the CEO on our 7 p.m. show. He said, look, we are going to do this. This is what passengers want. It'll start on June 1st. So this is how it's going to work. When you show up at the gate, after you've gone through security, they will take a, a thermal temperature of you. If you are 104 or higher, you're going to be flagged. They'll pull you aside. They'll say, let's take 10 minutes to make sure this was not an inaccurate reading. Maybe you were running to the gate, whatever it might be. If they test you a second time, and when they test you a second time, if it's 100.4 or higher, you will be denied. They will rebook you, and they will work with you to... You know, get you to where you need to go. The passenger levels, by the way, guys, we check this every day with the TSA. There has been a very slight uptick. But let's be clear, even though the numbers yesterday are the highest we've seen in three or four weeks, it's still down 93 percent compared to a year ago. And this brings up the question, what will airlines and airports have to do to reassure passengers? This is going to be an ongoing debate over the next several weeks. As you take a look at shares of the airline stocks, guys, a lot of people are saying, whose responsibility should it be to test passengers or check passenger temperatures? Should it be the airlines, as Frontier is doing? Should it be the airports? Should it be TSA? This will be an ongoing debate, especially if people actually do clamor for these temperature checks for people who are flying. Really quick, Phil. Um, I mean, that's at the gate. What about everything you go through prior to getting to the gate? That's that, and that's why when we talked with Barry Biffle, the CEO of Frontier last night, he said, look, do, do I think that it probably should happen maybe out by security or at the airport when you first get there? Yes, but we're not going to wait for that to be decided. We want to give people the reassurance now that everybody has been checked when they get on board a plane. And you bring up a great point, Carl. 
it, would it make more sense when you go through the TSA security to have it done there or when you first get to the airport, which then is another issue in terms of cost, in terms of logistics? How do you set that up? All of this needs to be worked out by the industry. And I suspect at this point it may ultimately fall on the airlines. Uh, interesting, Phil. We're going to brave new world, obviously, as we're all getting used to. Uh, thanks, Phil LeBeau, on aviation this morning. You've been listening to the opening hour of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. 